Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with my good friend, Dylan Erb. Dylan is the CEO of Paperspace. Dylan, welcome back to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Sam, thanks for having me. Hey, I am really looking forward to digging into our conversation. It is just about, actually just over a year since the last time we spoke. We had a really good conversation on machine learning as a software engineering discipline. And maybe we'll reflect a little bit on that. But before we do, I'd love to have you kind of reintroduce yourself to our audience and maybe share a bit of an update on Paperspace and what you've been up to in the past year. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. So my name is Dylan Erb. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Paperspace. We are a cloud computing company that builds a suite of tools for machine learning developers that simplifies the process of training and deploying machine learning models. We're based in New York. And yeah, I guess it's been a, it's been a fun year since we last chatted. Yeah. So I mentioned that conversation and it was one that we got a lot of great feedback on. We, we talked about this idea of machine learning. This, I guess, was what was a point in time where it was becoming very clear to folks that there was a shift for many in thinking about machine learning as this experimental process or an exploratory process to one that required engineering rigor and and discipline. And we had a really good conversation about that idea, but I wonder if you would share maybe your big takeaways or or recollections from that conversation. What were the, the key points for you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that it's probably true in any space that's moving very quickly where, you know, the, the kind of underlying technology is is changing seemingly every week. But as you know, in the machine learning space in particular, there's been a big conversation about questions such as, does machine learning require its own special set of tools or can we reuse maybe existing tools from the software engineering world? Are there kind of special considerations for the users of these applications? So is a data scientist a you know, traditional software engineer or something different? How do we bridge the gap between the kind of more standard machine learning programming languages like Python or Julia and the more traditional kind of software web tools and programming languages like Go and, and JavaScript? And so, you know, I think it's moved very quickly. And I would say even today it's, it's shifting, but I think it's undeniable that machine learning is very quickly making its way into the software engineering kind of discipline and, and more, you know, more importantly into a practice of like delivering machine learning models. Mm -hmm. So I saw a tweet this morning actually from, uh, SRK and uh, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit here, but the idea was 2015 to 2016, image and vision. Someone added 2017, 2018 transformers, 2019, 2020 NLP, 2021, 2022 ML ops. And the big question was 2023, 2024 question mark. 
And, you know, they were soliciting thoughts on kind of what's next. An idea that that we've been talking about that we'll kind of discuss more here it could be the thing that fills in that blank. And this this idea of compositional machine learning, we've kicked it around a couple of times in, in prior conversations. And, you know, maybe this is kind of a good entree to, to have you share a little bit about, you know, when you think of this idea of compositional machine learning, what is it? Where did it come from? What were some of the inspirations that you've seen recently that started you thinking down this line? Yeah, I, I really like that framing. And it's funny how quickly that all of those changes happened. You know, I think there's there's also this whole question around foundational machine learning or foundational models. Where are we in sort of the adoption curve? I think an idea that we've been kicking around, I know that you and I have talked about in the past is this, you know, or, or more recently around compositional AI. And so for us, you know, we've, we are, we're really at the, I would say, the beginning of a lot of folks' journey into machine learning. So Gradient, our machine learning stack is used by, you know, at this point, hundreds of thousands of data scientists and machine learning engineers for primarily a Jupyter Notebook product, similar to like a Google Colab or, or you know, kind of a web-based IDE. And so we've been really close to seeing folks kind of begin their journey into machine learning. And very rapidly, we've started to see some kind of interesting breakout cases of how machine learning has become sort of composed or, or, or remixed in a way that I think is just fascinating. A couple that come to mind that have really kind of sparked a, a, an internal, you know, kind of dialogue for, for us at Paperspace have been, one is, is, you know, this model, first order motion model came out of NeurIPS in, in 2019. And earlier this year, we had uh, someone on our platform build a kind of viral, funny lip syncing app that went from sort of academic paper a couple of years ago to, you know, number one app in the app store, you know, in lots of countries worldwide. And so it's kind of interesting where you see, you know, maybe an app developer taking a machine learning model and, and applying it to something uh, odd or interesting. The other one that I think has been really inspiring is, you know, we talk a lot about who's the audience of this and is it software engineers, is it data scientists, is it mathematicians, statisticians? And I think it's actually gone, expanded more quickly than we could have imagined. So today, one of the biggest audiences in the, in the Twitter sphere is artists and creators, folks doing generative art. And that's been precipitated largely by OpenAI's clip model, which is uh, contrastive language image pre-training, which basically was a model that was introduced that when you kind of remixed it with a couple of other generative models, gives you the ability to kind of, you know, use a text-based input and generate really fantastical, amazing um, art projects, you know, and now this is making its way into NFTs. So, so I think what, what's really interesting today is whether or not some of these big models are foundational or, or essential or, or whatever, I think what we're seeing is, you know, they're getting composed in interesting ways. So the API is not necessarily a cloud-based API that people are consuming, but really like taking these building blocks and reapplying them. So I think this idea of compositional AI is something that we're, you know, it's, it's kind of a framework that we're understanding how machine learning is moving past kind of this academic phase into kind of unexpected and, and interesting real-world applications. Do you draw inspiration for that from kind of the first wave of APIs uh, around the web? It's certainly, you know, especially when you use the term remix, that was yeah. a term that we like to throw around. I was trying to kind of mentally pin that in time and I don't really have the, I don't, you know, I have to research that, but like there was this transition from kind of this old school way of thinking about integrating different applications like SOA and web service, XML web services that no one yeah. thinks about anymore to kind of like web 2.0 and rest APIs when the, 
like the essentially the bar for integration and remixing different services got dramatically lower to the point that I think it's almost not a specific thing anymore because it's just such an integrated part of the way we think about building new applications and services, especially given the the rise of cloud. I wonder, you know, what that experience and that context tells you about the way composition will evolve on the machine learning side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big question. I think a lot of uh, you know a lot of smart folks are thinking about sort of what that looks like. I think the question for us is kind of what's the form factor there? If you think about sort of composable, portable, encapsulated building blocks of any kind of software architecture, immediately the question becomes sort of how big are they? What is the the kind of interface between them? Machine learning has rapidly gone through a number of phases, and you know we've been around for I guess six six years now, and sort of seen a number of these kind of rise and fall. So the first was this kind of idea. Everyone's going to consume machine learning models through APIs because that's how web developers are used to consuming things like Clearbit scores or something like that. You know, a lot of companies kind of rose on that model. Companies like Clarify doing really interesting vision work and making that available as APIs. Then the big cloud providers followed with vision APIs. And and the idea was that we would just kind of layer these into applications. I kind of, even when that was really sort of the model that people were pushing, it was clear that that wasn't going to be sufficient because, you know, folks want to build their own variant of these. And the API model is kind of fundamentally limited. So what we're, you know, another way of saying that is that the kind of the granularity had to get kind of smaller. You know, there's been a lot of consternation earlier, which was like, hey, these things are enormously computationally intense to actually create. Like very few companies can create models the size of GPT-3. Arguably, you know, a number you can you can count on your hand. And so this whole notion of kind of pre-training or refitting models was really sort of the, I would say for the last five years, kind of the uh, the standard, like no one's going to retrain the the kind of the first few layers of uh, of ImageNet. They're going to you know train the last one. And now we're seeing you know I think even a like a step beyond that, which is you know in the case of these kind of this creative art- artistic community using Clip, what they're doing is they're using Clip, which is a you know a model that OpenAI released that they OpenAI did not release sort of the generator architecture on top of it. So the community has kind of taken that and applied another generator called VQGAN. And so it's not even just taking one model and, and changing the data set you're working on. It's p- taking two models and then recomposing them in a really interesting way. Yeah, so I, I don't think we know exactly what the form factor is, but I, I run a company that, that builds tools for this, so we have to look for precedents. And so in our case, one of the, the main precedents that we've looked at is, is looking at other kind of composable code architectures. You know, For example, in GitHub, there's, there's this kind of very large ecosystem of actions, which are these kind of composable, encapsulated building blocks that you can apply into your code repo that can do things like do code coverage or deploy your code or test it or add additional functionality. And so as we've begun to develop more of our products and sort of you know, build products that, that respond to this compositional AI reality, we're very heavily inspired by things that have worked well. And arguably, you know, we have pretty good precedent for how, how to compose code that comes from all sorts of different places in the world and, and different foundational, I guess, I don't want to say foundational models, but different kind of foundational pieces. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's that is an interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's a point as much as a, a discussion around what is the right granularity uh, for delivering machine learning. You know, as you alluded to, it's something that we've been talking about for a long time. You, you, and I in particular, and the community yeah. at large. You know, more broadly. You know, to what degree will models as a service be? 
the primary delivery mechanism for your typical developer versus them needing the control that will require them to have access to notebooks and infrastructure and the entire end and experience so that they can customize what they're doing. And I think this, the idea that the future is not just single models, but kind of multiple models with, you know, that are trained in either some end to end way or fine tuned in an end to end way or in a tightly coupled way does at some point the the permutations of models that people might want to kind of remix breaks the industry's ability to create wrapper services for different combinations and people just operate at a lower level. It sounds like that's what you're seeing or what you're, you know, the vision that is driving your interest in this compositional idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's, there's, uh, you've heard a million times from companies and software developers in the space talking about end-to-end pipelines. You know, you explore some data, you train a model, you deploy it. I think that paradigm is has stuck around. I think it's a it's a good one for how you know data scientists and and data engineers can you know work on a product pipeline that eventually ships into something interesting. I think that the idea of end to end is maybe it oversimplifies it a bit because it kind of it, it sounds like it's sort of there's an input and then an output. Whereas you know what what I think we're really seeing is more combinatorial. Like there are many inputs and many outputs, and it's you know fan in architecture, fan out architecture. And very practically, this has informed how we're building tools. Our main, our most popular product is a Jupyter notebook-based product. And for folks that are, you know, there's a, a, a obviously a, a large conversation around what what is the role of Jupyter inside of the machine learning development process. But one of the very fundamental limitations, and I think there are a lot of benefits, but one of the fundamental limitations is that it is really a you know a linear pipeline. It starts at the top and it works its way through cells down to the bottom. And so fundamentally, it's not really recomposable in a way that that facilitates or makes possible these more interesting applications. They're not as composable or portable, so they're harder to share. You know, like they, they're hard to diff, you know, they're, they're large JSON objects. I think they're extremely useful um, in some ways, but, you know, we've seen there's a, there's a reason that folks have really been embracing sort of these pipelining tools that let you do kind of arbitrarily complex input outputs. And so that's where a lot of our thinking is today, is around sort of what is that form factor? How do you go from maybe exploring something model or or data or just code repo in a, in a notebook and sort of an interactive REPL? And then how does it get into a quote-unquote production or, you know, not even production, how does it get into a more interesting kind of state after you've modified it? And so that's really, I think, informed a lot of our thinking because data code clearly is the main input on one side. You want to create an app or a web service on the other side. But, you know, there's a lot of other pieces you pull in and we've been drawing, you know, a lot on Ideas like continuous integration, continuous deployment, um, composability, pipelining, uh, DAGs, and you know, there's memes now about DAGs and YAMLs because I think what, we're, what the industry is seeing is that we have to uh, embrace kind of a more uh, flexible system for building out these new kind of composed machine learning applications. Now, your your comments on notebooks is calling to mind another kind of data science internet. I don't know if it's a meme or a feud or a drama or whatever, but, you know, maybe just put it as like, you know, there are different opinions on the role of notebooks or the appropriateness of notebooks, probably best characterized by Joel Gruce on one side, you know, and his, I don't like notebooks talk. 
And then yep. Jeremy Howard on the other side, you know, with his, I like notebooks talk. Um, yep. And I think that, you know, that, that contrast is, is there are folks that have taken those positions and tried to operationalize them in, in different ways. So like, you know, typically the, I don't like notebooks camp, well, they just don't use notebooks and they use traditional code and traditional code artifacts you know, repos and containers and productionalize their projects, just not using notebooks. On the other side, there's folks like, you know, Jeremy and Fast AI, but also, you know, Netflix, I think is kind of famous for this and some companies which spun out of Netflix for, and believe Airbnb was trying to do this for a while. I don't know the, the more recent status of this, but trying to take the notebook and turn it into production artifact, either through some kind of decorators or annotators or things like that, that allow you to, to specify within the notebook, hey, this is the code that needs to be exposed, other mechanisms. It sounds like you you started it. What's interesting, I think, in this conversation is you started with a notebook service that was popular, but then took this traditional engineering code artifact route as opposed to leaning into the notebook yeah, tell, I'm yeah. Curious the thinking there. Yeah. Also, um, you know, for folks that are listening that aren't familiar with paper space, you know, we originally started more as an infrastructure as a service company focused on GPUs, and so we are we're interesting in that you know we kind of in many ways grew up with this machine learning developer audience and kind of watched what they were doing. So you know, the first the very first offering we provided was something called machine learning in a box, which was basically a virtual machine template with all sorts of dependencies kind of pre-installed that we spent countless hours, you know, fine tuning to make it work. And this was before really containerization had taken off. We worked very, you know, early on, we worked very closely with Jeremy at Fastai. You know, we've been very fortunate to, I, I think, I, I don't know the, you know, where, where it falls, to, you know, from all the numbers, but we, we've trained a lot of folks in the, in the Fastai universe or onboarded them into machine learning and deep learning more broadly. Uh, through the notebook product, but you know, notebooks re kind of formalized because it was a pattern we saw everyone doing. They would create a virtual machine and then they would install Jupyter uh, and then they would you know run a web service and, a, and put a public IP on it. So we kind of formalized that pattern and that became gradient notebooks. So for us, we with that background, we've kind of had two. We have sort of this beginners using notebooks. At the same time, we are running large GPU infrastructure, large clusters. We've worked with a handful of much, much larger kind of very advanced practitioners on, on doing kind of production deployments, really. And so for us, it was really, I think it's the question of how do you bridge those two worlds? I think notebooks are really wonderful for onboarding people into complex code and data concepts. I don't know if it's a forever thing. When we describe gradient notebooks today, we talk about it more as it's a it's a web-based Jupyter notebook and IDE. So you know you can bring in uh, Python code and YAML code and you know other kind of supporting bits as well. So it looks more like maybe a VS code than sort of a standalone Jupyter interface. But fundamentally, you know, we've been very interested in in how do you go from a notebook into like a notebook is like you're kind of building your your idea or conviction around something, and how do you take that and make something more out of it? And so that's that's I think the area that a lot of folks are thinking about. It's interesting you mentioned kind of decorators and and patterns that have kind of been introduced for turning a notebook into a you know runnable Python file. There was a you know paper mill is uh, yeah. the uh, the Netflix project that is very very popular. There are other interesting ones like Streamlit, which are kind of I don't even know how to describe them. Sort of a, a combination of a of an interactive notebook and a deployed process, mm -hmm. and 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of like right now, the question is, how do you take this audience? I mean, in our case, very practically, we have a lot of folks that are sort of maybe growing out of Jupyter Notebooks. And how do we give them sort of a more composable path or, you know, easier path into promoting what they're building or maybe even thinking of like larger possibilities because they can bring in easier, more shareable, composable building blocks. So, yeah, I mean, I think I don't think notebooks are going anywhere. um, And I and I think they're enormously useful. But I don't think they're exclusively the form factor. And so, you know, that's why we're all kind of working hard to find sort of, you know, the next step here. And you're the, the direction that you're betting on is, you know, the, the memed DAG. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> the very memed DAG. I mean, yeah, the machine learning memes have gotten pretty, pretty good in the last year. Um, so I don't know where that puts us on the, uh, the hype cycle. The one that I shared yesterday on Twitter, which I thought was really funny, was like a movie poster. It was like from the creators of untitled.ipymb and yep. untitled parentheses one.ipymb is untitled parentheses two.ipymb. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Spot on. Um, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's actually practically Jupyter Notebooks are really hard to version. We actually had an internal tool that we're you know, hopefully will release one day, but that we call MBDIF, which is our diffing tool for notebooks, mm. just because we had to do it. Um, and we ended up running into lots of kind of weird issues because they're, you know, they're just, they're not, they're not really, the, really the, opaque. Uh, the format, format is odd. People can annotate it. You know, Colab can add different metadata annotations. The spec changes a bit. We can add annotations. And it's just, it's it's like hard to diff and sort of there's different inputs and outputs. There's, you know, Jupyter widgets, which are sort of these special collaborations between server and client side. They're just, they're really weird from a traditional code perspective. So, you know, I think we have to move towards a direction that looks more like traditional software engineering. And that was my, you know, big pitch a year ago. I, I you know, stand by it. We have, you know, we, we believe really strongly that Jupyter has a place uh, for sure, but but to kind of move to the next step, we have to start thinking of, you know, drawing from known best practices in, in the kind of software engineering world. And, and one of those is, I wouldn't even call them DAGs necessarily. I mean, they certainly, you know, directed acyclic graphs. But yeah, I mean, you need to start, you know, introducing kind of pipelining syntax and semantics and, and kind of th- those primitives. You know, for us, we're actually just about to, by the time this airs, we will have rolled out workflows, which is really like our most ambitious project and also kind of our most comprehensive, which is uh, really an automation and build system for machine learning applications that allows you to really tightly couple it to source control. So, you know, to your point on uh, kind of untitled one and two, um, you know, that's not sustainable, but, you know, sort of add a a few lines of code into a, a repo and begin to turn that into a kind of a composable building block that could be consumed by other people. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, this is heavily inspired by GitHub actions and, and tools like that. And sort of blended with kind of the data pipelining tools such as you know Airflow or in the, you know we're using Argo, uh, which is kind of a containerized Kubernetes uh, system. But yeah, I mean I think this is where it has to go. So you know I don't think we're leaving notebooks behind, but we, we you know they're they're insufficient to take us to I think where we want to go as an industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your infrastructure you use Kubernetes under the covers uh, in a lot of places. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I yep. believe that yeah, that, we're that a big Kubernetes. Yeah. yeah, and you're, you know, you selected Argo as the workflow engine, which Kubeflow does. Why yep. not just like create Kubeflow as a service? Other folks have have gone that route. Why kind of build it from scratch? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think 
Kubeflow, uh, amazing project in lots of ways. I think it's, this is my opinion, in my opinion alone, I think it, it, it kind of struggles to, to match sort of the audience where it is today. Um, I think it's, it's hard to set up. I think the building out sort of the, the Kubeflow actions effectively, I think is still a bit difficult. So it requires just more software engineering work. So very large companies, you know, I don't know, Spotify can use Kubeflow because they can invest in that ecosystem. I think, you know, there, it's, it's not a pattern that, will be as extensible for the kind of wide adoption that I foresee. And so what we've done with Workflows, which is our kind of newest addition to Gradient, is, is kind of take the best of, of Kubeflow and Argo, which is you know, containerization, sort of the ability to create these complex DAGs with triggers and sort of the fundamental pieces, but expose it in a way that is much more uh, kind of akin to folks that are building you know, for example, we took a lot of inspiration from tools like Netlify and Versal, which are these web tools that basically let you come in, attach a repo to their service, and then it you know, basically creates a build system and gives you a website at the end with just clicking a few buttons. And I think that's the form factor we need. And today, you know, workflows, when you, when you onboard, you basically, it's, it's a very similar process. Give me a repo or pick one of a sample repo. It's going to give a, a little bit of code in, in a workflow.yaml file. Although that's kind of abstracted away. And I think we're going to move quickly to a point where the YAML is really an implementation detail and folks will be, you know, I, I don't know if it's a full low code, no code, because I, I don't know how quickly we get there. But the composability is where we want to focus our energy. You know, I think Kubeflow has solved a lot of interesting problems. And, and, and you know, there are a handful of other folks in the data, kind of the data flow space that have worked on this as well. Folks coming from the the Jupiter world, so there's like uh, these tools like Plumber is a really interesting one that I've been looking at recently. There's one called Kale for Kubernetes, which lets you sort of build out building blocks from a notebook and make them deployable. But we're coming at it from the other direction, which is like what tools are common in the software engineer's tool belt, and how do we make this machine learning thing look a lot more like that? So for us, the inspiration is it's not starting at Jupyter notebooks; it's starting at uh, Jenkins, Circle CI, Versal, Netlify, GitHub Actions—things that are like kind of like known known paradigms and known tool stacks or types of tools in you know for folks that are building production applications. Mm -hmm. yeah, one of the things that I think is compelling from a user interface, user experience kind of perspective about paper mill esque types of approaches is the idea that they start with the notebook because the notebooks is an, an interesting and useful place for kind of the throwing the stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks and like starting to, you know, shape it and just kind of bootstrapping your thinking about the way to attack a problem. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, the traditional approach is, okay, you do that, you kind of bang stuff into shape and then you like, pull it out into a Python module, into a text file. But these other approaches allow you to like, it's even easier in a sense. And if you've already got that infrastructure in place, you just kind of add your decorator or whatever. And there's your, your artifact. I, I think the question I'm trying to get to is like, you know, do you see a bridge between the worlds and what you've built with workflows where you're starting in this I don't think you're suggesting folks to not use notebooks to get started or to to experiment because they're useful for that. Is there a bridge from that to a DAG-based traditional system other than, okay, you know, rip your stuff out of the notebook and put it into a code module and check it into GitHub? Yeah, uh, that's a good one. I don't know. I mean, I think that we're internally doing a lot of work on on thinking about that form factor. Like, can you, you know, turn a cell into an action in our in our pipeline? Can you sort of send one over? 
I think that the form factor that we need to get to more quickly, and this is actually where we've spent more of our more, more of our energy uh, with workflows, is kind of closer to what I would call maybe build packs or sample apps. So, for example, you know, I think what Versal, and for folks not familiar, it's a it's a, a web hosting tool for building or a tool for building web applications very easily, um, and it relies a lot on. Things like, for example, Create React App, which is sort of a, a starter template that if you're making a website, it's a really good place to kind of fork that one and start somewhere. And so I think that the pattern we have for notebooks today is people fork a notebook and build something out, clip and VQGAN, and then they run through it and they get some images. I guess that form factor is, is hard to tr- you know, directly turn into something like a Create React app or a, I don't know, a, a starter template of sorts. But I do think... Is it the nature of notebooks that makes it hard? Yeah. And- I mean, it's, it's largely because the large benefit of a notebook is that you get this interactive REPL environment. You, know, you type code, you get a response very quickly. But that same, you know, the fact that it is sort of embedding its outputs and its inputs, cells are not really ordered. They don't have any reference to the dependencies or the, or the metadata that's required. Required to actually run the thing. It's hard because it's a notebook. <laughs> it's hard because it's a notebook. And so, you know, what I think will, you know, one of the things that we're bringing over more into workflows is the kind of interactive REPL uh, idea. Like, for example, in CircleCI, which is our build tool that we really like for our web application, you can SSH into an instance, which is the equivalent of kind of creating a REPL. You kind of go in and you can start interacting with the real thing. It's just you're doing it at a at a you know a, a higher like a, a different level of granularity. You know, a notebook is really like tightly connected to a single kernel, and you're kind of you know going through. I think you know I don't think they're going anywhere. I think they're extremely important components. Um, I think that their importance will be we'll know more. I think in a few you know maybe even in the next year when we start seeing sort of how the the next set of killer applications come to fruition. And my guess is it's going to look more like starter templates like Create React app that you're forking. You know, more like build systems and build packs where you're kind of focusing your energy on picking different, instead of DALI, you're picking VQGAN. Or instead of the first order motion model, you're picking the, the new enhanced one that, that Snapchat just came out with. So uh, yeah, I, I think that that's, it's a big open question. But the good thing is we don't have to invent it from scratch. We can follow a good precedent. And I think we should draw that. And this goes back to sort of the last conversation. I think we should draw primarily from the software engineering world, because a lot of this has been resolved over the last, say, 25 years or whatever, um, on how, you, how do you build scalable, large production application. One of the things still in that I've heard you say in this conversation, and we've talked previously, is that this project is one of your or your paper space's most ambitious undertaking. And I'm curious what, why that is, like what makes it ambitious it sounds like you took argo and like built a web app around it (laughs) you know you can make it you can you can reduce it or simplify it to sounding very simple you know what where's the complexity in the effort yeah great question i mean i i think for us it's we know that there are certain really well-known best practices so notebooks today whether we think they're going to exist for 10 years or not they're they're really practical useful components in the machine learning you know, developers tool belt. Deployments on the other end, which we also have a deployment service that we're, we're uh, by the time this rolls out, there will be sort of our, our next uh, iteration of that uh, that has been released. But deployments are also relatively well understood, at least from a web perspective. I mean, we can go into, you know, edge deployments and uh, quantizing and pruning models and sort of the, you know, the complexity there. But I think it's, there, there are less open questions. Really, it's the question about the glue or the fabric that takes these kind of early 
exploratory prototyping tools and lets them kind of transition into the you know the per, the, the production world uh, you know thing that, that every software company in the MLOps space is talking about end to end you know training to deployment R and D to production um, mm-hmm. and I think that that inner fabric I think is really important and there's no shortage of DAG based data flow data tools and so for us it was very much pick, you know, have some principles on what we're picking as the foundational piece. You know, containerization, we think is, it's, you know, we're making bets. We're making bets on technology stacks. You know, we invested very heavily into Kubernetes. You know, Kubernetes is an amazing technology, has actually, I think, been more complicated than some people thought, but I think is a, you know, it's a big, it's a big bet for us is that that type of container orchestration layer is one that we shouldn't try to solve differently for machine learning than we should other, other areas. The form factor, though, for how you compose them is very different because the reality is the audience is different. You know, the folks that are that are, I would say, that should be using machine learning in their day to day work, if all things were created equal and it were very easy to do, is massive. It includes marketing people and statisticians and folks in the humanities and artists and in addition to software engineers and BI people and you know analysts and it, it really is and, and and medical practitioners so it's pretty pretty expansive and so what that means is there's there I don't think there is a single form factor for everyone I can see a world where there are Zapier like connections for machine learning models to endpoints and there are APIs that are consumable just like there are today for web services but the, I think the question that you know when we think about it our audience is Every software developer in the world building software applications and delivering those, we believe that they are going to use machine learning as just a, a part of their tool belt, a part of their stack. So, you know, we have some guidance on how to, how you know workflows should be designed, but there, there's no very obvious precedent for exactly how this should be done. And I think that when you take on a very large project like this, um, getting the form factor wrong, especially for you know a software company, can be can be really dangerous. So we can get into sort of how product and development and management is done, but I, I you know, it, it really is always, I think, even at all good companies, some percentage of like seeing where the world is today, what are people building, uh, you know, what are their problems and challenges? And then the other 50% is what are going to be the challenges a year from now? And given how quickly the space is moving and how many things that I think are just really amazing and unpredictable, it's, I think, ambitious to try to give a, a version of a future that is so up in the air right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you referenced this idea of form factor, you know, multiple times through, throughout this conversation. And, and, you know, what you're saying clearly is that you know, it's not necessarily the like the engineering challenge of hooking up a workflow engine to a deployment system to this. It's, it's all of that. There's existing software out there that you're taking advantage of, you know, not that that's easy, right? When you have a large distributed system, it's always hard, but it's Sounds like what you're saying is that the challenge was more getting the user experience right and all that, you know, compared to previous undertaking, which was there's this well-known user experience, a notebook. How do we make it so that, you know, how do we make it easier to deploy that? Yep. Um, There's a lot more risk in trying to figure out, you know, as you say, kind of look into the future in terms of what people will need to, you know, more easily kind of compose machine learning and AI systems, and then build a system that uses this, these infrastructure primitives to make that easier to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the challenge. I don't think it's ours alone, but I think you know what we're coming at it with is uh, 
I think, a, you know, a, a somewhat unique perspective, which is that we, you know, we have a um, more of an infrastructure, you know, deep GPU and accelerator focus than probably most companies in this space. At the same time, we have created a tool that is used by probably more folks in this space than, than almost any other tool for kind of learning this for the first time. And so we have these this kind of split audience of like beginners and advanced people. And, and I think that um, that gives us a, an interesting perspective on how to um, how to bridge those. But certainly it's not resolved. And, you know, I can see a scenario where we come back in a year and we say, yeah, so, you know, actually we, we the YAML stuff was uh, too hard to do and the audience didn't need it. You know, we really had to make this, say, a, a WYSIWYG, a, a GUI builder or something like that, or, mm-hmm. you know, more of a Zapier or, you know, notebooks actually, you know, are no longer as useful when people can, can clone starter apps that do basically what they want to do anyway, including the deployment and the training and the, and the you know, inferencing logic. So yeah, I think we'll see. I mean, I think look, uh, we're we're in a really exciting time. I mean, for software developers in particular, uh, I, I just listened to the Greg uh, Brockman version on, the, on your podcast, which I which I really liked talking about co- Codex and Copilot. You know, mm-hmm. we, these tools are being used today in the real world by like machine learning and assisted technologies are are real and they're being used by programmers, by uh, physicians, by a lot of folks. And so, at some level, I think it's inevitable that this technology breaks out of the lab or, or whatever the analogy is. But, you know, I think there's a race to figure out the form factor. And I think the opportunity is massive because I think we're going to see, you know, just like today, totally unexpected applications um, that are really inspiring. You know, I think it's it's amazing that we've been in this space, you know, uh, for, for its relatively um, short life, life cycle. Um, and just, I continue to be amazed at what is mm-hmm. being created and what's possible. We could, we could have a whole other hour conversation about, you know, transformers and, uh, you know, sort of what, what, what that, what that has done for the space, but. Uh, and you know, we probably should, but you brought up the interview with Greg and, and Codex and you talked abstractly about that stuff being used, but from our conversations, I know it's not necessarily just abstract for you. You've actually used it and there's some Codex generated code in, in paper yeah. space. Yeah, we'll have to. Uh, I mean, it's uh, still, you know, we we were when when it first came out, we were kind of playing around and you know giving some comments like generate a function that you know does this simple task, uh, creates an array of of interesting names or whatever for sample projects. And we actually do have a, a piece today which is totally AI generated that is in our production application. It's small, it's you know bounded, but it opens up the question, you know, if one, whatever, 0.001% of our code base is AI generated today, I'm curious what percentage that is uh, a year from now or the next time we talk. Uh, My guess is it's going to be more. And so, you know, that's an exciting future for sure. Like this, this stuff is not, we're not talking abstractly about the power of machine learning to change your day to day. It's actually doing it. Um, you know, that's, this is also a very complicated topic. I don't think engineer, you know, software engineers are, are going to be out of jobs, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think this, this kind of radical AI assisted future is really exciting, whether you're an artist, a programmer, a media producer, uh, whatever it is. Like, I think that, um, that's why this space is so exciting. And that's why I think, you know, we care so much about trying to find the right form factor UX sort of the, the, the way that we yeah. can assist in helping build more amazing applications, like, you know, kind of breaking out of the the kind of meme culture and getting into like what what are you know what are builders building kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Dylan, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks so much for the update, and looking forward to next time. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.